Beloved saints of God at Glen Vista Baptist Church, what a wonderful privilege to warmly welcome you on this Lord's Day morning as we gather together. It's Sunday morning, the 5th of April, 2020. It's the third time that, or the third Lord's Day, that we are not able to corporately gather at our facilities. And therefore, I want to thank you right at the outset of this live stream, where you find yourself in your lounge or wherever you are at this point in time, and I trust with your family, I want to thank you again for allowing us the wonderful privilege of gathering with you in your home, doing it in a very different way, ways we are not quite used to doing it. But again, we thank God that in this unprecedented time, He has given us other means in which the Word of God nonetheless can be proclaimed. So it's my joy to welcome you on behalf of the leadership at Glen Vista Baptist Church to this live stream this morning. This is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. May our God be glorified as we gather in our different locations, nonetheless having an understanding that we are in some ways still together. Allow me, however, at the outset of this morning's live stream, just to say it, because I know you're feeling it as well, just to say how hard this is. This is difficult. Uh, this is painful, beloved. Uh, on behalf of our family, on behalf of us as a family, I want to say to you, we really are missing you. Uh, just the other night when we went to bed, Liesl was expressing to me how much she's missing the church. And that sentiment really is on behalf of us as a family. We're missing not gathering with you. It's hard. Uh, allow me also to say that this is hard for me. Uh, preaching to a camera, knowing you're receiving it in your living room. You're seeing me, but I'm not seeing you. I'm not with you. Uh, it, it, it is hard to preach the word of God uh, to an inanimate object, uh, i.e. a camera, and not to the saints who are with us in the sanctuary as we used to. And, and that reminds me of, of, of how much we long just to be together. Let me say at the outset, it's reminded me, uh, even in this week, as I read a very helpful article of the privileges of church membership. You see, as odd as this may seem, in other words, me preaching God's word uh, from the comfort of my own living room via technology, you receiving it via a live stream, as odd as that may seem, uh, it's days like these when we cannot gather in larger settings and in larger numbers that we are precisely reminded why we don't simply attend a local fellowship, but why we make promises to each other in the local fellowship, God's church. You see, that's why we have at Glen Vista Baptist a membership covenant. That's why we covenant together under God as God has brought us together. And, and those covenants really mean much, especially at a time like these or like this, when we find ourselves in uncomfortable seasons. Uh, you know, anyone can do convenient. Anyone can do easy. But, but membership covenants really specifically are put to the test in the hard and the challenging days. It, it's for those threatening times, for the uncertain and the unprecedented seasons like the one the world is experiencing right now. You see, it's at times like these that people curve inward. It's at times like these that 
People often selfishly are concerned only for their own safety and for their own protection and for their own remote productivity. Instead of reaching out diligently and even digitally across the social distance to check in on others and to get updates and to pray, uh, to help where we can, to get medication, to get supplies, to get groceries. You see, that's what the church is about at this time. It's about us loving one another and being reminded that we have covenanted together and that we're feeling the aching, beloved friends, of not being able to physically meet together and therefore holding tight to that covenant we've made under God, one with another and with God, as we look to him as the Lord and as the shepherd of his church and of his people, and as we do for one another, that which we can do to the utmost of our ability to care for one another adequately. Allow me the opportunity, uh, dear brothers and sisters at Glen Vista Baptist, to thank you for the way that you are caring for one another. I'm aware that one of our midweek studies this past week tried out uh, cyber technology to meet uh, in the context of a midweek study and uh, if, if that has worked well we could possibly even try that with some of our other studies. Uh, God's people are so missing each other that we're going out of our way to reach out to one another and, and that really warms our hearts. You know not being able to be together has reminded me of the joyous sentiments which the psalmist expresses in Psalm 133. Listen, as I read it to you, behold, writes the psalmist, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Oh, how we sense that at Glen Vista. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. Well, that is an introduction to this live stream. Allow me to warmly welcome you wherever you are, whether it be here in the south of Johannesburg, or perhaps even in other areas of our country as you sign into our live stream, be it even uh, internationally. May the Lord's blessing be upon us as we gather around the preaching of his word this Lord's day. Oh, this time is a reminder that our God is sovereign. I ask again, beloved saints, that we pray much and that we pray much for one another, that we pray much for our president, for the country, for those who are leading us, for those being affected directly by the COVID-19 virus, for those gripped in fear, for those without hope and without God in this world. What a time this is for the proclamation and the spread of the gospel. May I again urge you, beloved saints, that you will use the means we are providing, the Sunday morning recording, the Wednesday morning recording that we're sending out, our Facebook live stream, the YouTube live stream, some of the voice notes that we're sending out to be in contact. Distribute that far and wide. Send that to others who need to hear the word of God, that together you and I may be responsible in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have a role to play in that. And thank you for those of you who are already doing so. Just a couple of announcements. Continue being on the lookout for one another. Again, so encouraging to hear how our people are doing that. We thank and praise our God. Do pray with us as we continue looking for better ways in terms of getting together in a time that we cannot physically meet. 
As mentioned just now, one of our midweek studies has tried out cyberspace. Uh, there's so many technological uh, apps that we can use to help us in this regard. We thank and praise God for that. Don't forget to watch out for our bulletin that is sent to you electronically, usually on a Saturday, that you can receive it before Lord's Day worship and that you can know what's happening in and around us as we continue seeking to please the Lord. Now would you turn with me in God's Word as we continue our systematic reading through the Psalms. We find ourselves this morning in Psalm 135, verse 1 through to 7, and I ask that you would read with me as we consider the word of the Lord. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord. For he is good. Praise the Lord. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know, verse 5, that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Just so far, the reading of God's word this morning as we gather, I'm going to invite you at the outset, before we come to the preaching of God's word, that you would now turn with me as we look to our God and beseech him through the means of prayer. Let's pray together. Be still and know that I am God and that I will be exalted among the heavens. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, this Lord's Day we present ourselves before you. We come with confidence before the throne of mercy knowing that at the throne we might find both mercy and grace in a time of need. Oh, how we adore you and how we bow before him who alone is worthy to be worshipped. How we thank you, oh God, for the blessings you poured out even in these last couple of days as we've had abundant rains upon the earth. A tangible reminder for us that you cause the rain to fall on the godly and the ungodly, and that even in a time of unprecedented crisis uh, nationwide, our God still pours out his blessing. And this morning, O oh God, we want to worship and thank you for that. It's good to be together, although that together is, is different. Uh, we really, in some way, are getting used to a new norm and this new norm our father is very different from what we used to we're reminded again that this is now not how you've ultimately ordained that it should be but rather on the lord's day we should come together not neglecting uh, the gathering of the saints as is the habit of some but coming together and encouraging one another well lord at this time in your sovereign providence that is not possible therefore we thank you for other ways in which we can do so. I want to pray wherever the sound of your word is falling even now 
as the gospel is about to be proclaimed, whether it be in living rooms, around laptops, cell phones, whatever means of technology our people are using to receive the preaching of the word, oh God, let your blessing fall upon the individual families represented in this local church. How we long that families that are now divided because of a virus can be brought together again soon and that we can experience the blessedness of being in one another's company as something of the blessing of the unity that we've just read about here in Psalm 133. I do this morning, O oh God, pray for our beloved people, commending each before the throne, asking, O oh God, that you would be so gracious to your flock, that you, the great shepherd of the, of the sheep, will tend your flock. Thank you for those that are truly reaching out to each other in this difficult time. Thank you for the genuine love and concern that is being demonstrated. Thank you for the many phone calls, WhatsApp voice calls and audio calls. Uh, thank you for, for Zoom and Microsoft Team and all these things that are currently being used for us to be able to communicate with one another and spread the gospel. We thank you, O oh God, for YouTube and for Facebook and for WhatsApp, for voice notes. Thank you that you've given us other means by which the gospel can be made known. We would pray even now as we come to the preaching of your word. O oh God, bless it. Bless it, we pray, for the sake of your glory. Bless it for the sake of your people, that your people may be edified that those who are perhaps hearing the gospel today, even for the first time, that the gospel will not fall on closed ears, on deafened ears, but that the Holy Spirit will unstop those ears and penetrate both heart and mind with the gospel, that the gospel may fall on fertile soil and that you, Lord Jesus, will bring about a harvest even hundredfold as a result of your word, which you have promised will never return void to you. So use now the preaching of the word amongst the saints at Glen Vista Baptist as we continue our exposition in the book of Genesis. Use it for your glory. Use it for the glory even and the benefit of others who are tuning in. May Christ Jesus be glorified. We pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, I'm excited and it is good once again for us to be back uh, in the, uh, the book of Genesis. As you'll see on the screen before you, our title slide uh, this morning, uh, I've really tied it with what we saw last Lord's Day, and I've called it Flimsy Leaves Cannot Hide the Dysfunctionality That Comes Through Curse and Judgment. We find ourselves still in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to invite you to come with me to verse 14 through to 19. As we now, this Lord's Day, consider the effects of the fall and the curse and the judgment that God pronounces on Adam and on Eve and the serpent as a result of the fall. So come with me, therefore, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. We're picking up at verse 14 as we read the word of God together. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise 
his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Then verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Just so far, the reading of God's word, once again, you'll see the title of this morning's message, Flimsy Leaves Cannot Hide the Dysfunctionality That Comes Through Curse and Judgment. Therefore, just so far, the reading of God's word and we no doubt know, beloved, that God will add his abundant blessing to the reading of the word as we now consider the exposition of this wonderful text uh, before us. From peace to rivalry, from joy to gloom, from fearlessness to fear, from unity to enmity, from hope to hopelessness, from calm and order to chaos and anarchy. That describes the scene in the garden post the fall. Sin disrupts everything that was good. A bondage of corruption that has left the created world in futility and in the pangs and the agony of childbirth, awaiting the redemption of the sons of men and the liberation that comes by divine decree and sovereign grace alone. A fall that has left man utterly incapable of recognizing his own sin and his own depravity, a fall which has made man God's enemy and God man's enemy. Unless arrested and set free from the bonds of sin and shame, only one thing can rescue us from the shackles of our sin. Only one thing can undo the devastating effects of the sin of the first Adam. And that is the rescuing love of the second Adam. As thus far having seen in our exposition of Genesis. You see truly it is only the self-giving sacrifice of Christ that can set a guilt-ridden people free from bondage, the bondage that leads to decay and that leads to hell. 
You see, that's what Genesis 3 is all about. It's the painting of a devastating picture. Telling us how very far we have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet also painting a picture of saving grace that offers a new and a living way by which man can be saved. Genesis 3 first shows us the depth of our depravity. And then as we will see today offers the glimmers of hope that come through a Messiah who will be sent to the world to rescue his people from their sin. Yet now, right around the world, we see a world largely trapped in its own sin. And we see, as it were, beloved friends, Genesis 3 playing off right before our own eyes on a daily basis. For this is what we see. No one takes responsibility for his or her own sin. Exactly what we saw last Sunday, Adam and Eve doing in the garden. Rather than taking responsibility for our own sin, we find ourselves mostly blaming it on our circumstances, blaming it on others, blaming it on the devil, or even blaming it on God. I don't know how many of you remember the cartoon characters Calvin and Hobbes. They were great cartoons in the 1990s, and I guess I'm giving my age away. And if you can remember these cartoons, the cartoon is mostly a monologue by Calvin, uh, the little boy, to his tiger friend Hobbes. And on the screen that will come up now, I point your attention to one of those that clearly describes the essence of what we are seeing unfolding in Genesis 3. Have a look at the screen. This clip begins with the two of them walking along and Calvin musing, Nothing I do is my fault. Oh, how we hear Adam and Eve, don't we? Nothing I do is my fault. The next frame then shows Hobbes uh, scratching his whiskers as Calvin expresses strong disapproval and he says, My family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. Then we see Calvin, eyes shut and arms crossed, doing a poor me. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. Again, can you hear Adam and Eve? Hobbes then responds, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. And the strip then ends with Calvin walking on saying, I love the culture of victimhood. Victimhood. That's what our society is all about. Buck passing is the therapeutic trademark of the new millennium. And this has its roots 
in original sin. That's exactly what has happened thus far in the garden. And now we will see how God pronounces his judgment and his curse upon the serpent, then upon the woman, and then upon Adam, Adam our federal representative. So I invite you therefore to come with me as we delve into the text before us and we now see these curses pronounced by God. Well, beloved, that brings me to our first point and the first thing that I see in the text that we are considering is that a divine declaration is made here upon a despicable serpent. Come with me to verse 14 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now notice once again as we come to verse 14, even as we saw last week, the particular order, dear friends, in which God addresses the characters in this narrative. First, God addresses, as of verse 14, the serpent then Eve, and then finally Adam, who is ultimately responsible as our federal head. This again is simply a restating of God's order, the order as per God's grand design, as instituted as a creation mandate, even in Genesis. You see, here in Genesis 3, God now pronounces both judgment and curses, and the effects of those punishments are felt upon all mankind and all creation right up until this very moment. And the final judgment is still to come. That both glorious yet terrifying day when Christ will descend on the cloud of glory and yet till that day when Christ comes, the effect of these curses will last till then. Now look at verse 14. See how the Lord God then firstly addresses the serpent. And I want you to notice that God offers no way of repentance, no chance of repentance, no opportunity for repentance towards the serpent. Upon the serpent, God only pronounces a curse. Then I want you to see that the curse which God pronounces here upon the serpent has a twofold object. The first object of the curse is upon the reptile, in other words, the serpent himself, as we see in verse 14. And then secondly, You'll see with me that the second part of the curse is then addressed upon Satan himself, who is the one who comes upon the serpent by indwelling the serpent. Now, as we consider verse 14, it's important that you see that even though the curse outwardly would be pronounced on the serpent, that the real thrust of the curse is against that malevolent spirit controlling its body and its speech as Revelation 12, 9 calls him, that old serpent called the devil. That's who we're dealing with here. That old serpent called the devil. In other words, recognize this, that the ultimate curse, however, comes upon the snake 
For God in verse 14 says this to the snake, the serpent. Because you, the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Friends, this reminder, or rather this pronouncement, comes as an everlasting reminder to man of the instrument of his fall and the final destruction that will come upon Satan himself. The fact that the snake will eat dust all the days of its life should not be taken in a literal sense. But rather, the expression is mainly a graphic figure of speech indicating the humiliating judgment and the ultimate fall of the serpent. Now, turn your attention to verse 15. In verse 15, we see that just as God addressed the serpent, his speech now moves beyond the serpent and God now addresses Satan directly. For in verse 15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Dear friends, what we have here is quite amazing. We have here, as it were, the first gospel proclamation. And this first gospel proclamation found right at the outset in Genesis 3, it is commonly known the proto-evangelium. I'll say that again, it's a big word, the proto-evangelium. It literally just means the first gospel. And, and this first gospel is found in Genesis 3, and it is gospel hope proclaiming that the Christ will come to crush the head of Satan. That's the first gospel promise of restoration made as early as Genesis 3 verse 15. The gospel is in Genesis. So in the very midst of sin, right at the outset Directly after the fall, tangible grace is demonstrated as the first gospel proclamation is made and as hope arises of the very announcement of a Messiah that would come to save his people from their sin. This proto-evangelium promises the ultimate coming and the victory of the Redeemer. And obviously this promise in Genesis 3.15 intends far more than a trivial reference uh, to physical enmity between man and snakes. But, but friends, rather, it looks forward to the time when Satan will be completely crushed beneath the feet, the feet of the woman's triumphant seed, capital S, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who will come and undo the effects of the fall of the first Adam. And so, God makes a divine declaration upon a despicable serpent. And the declaration is deliberately twofold. First, verse 14, the snake will be humiliated to the ground and exist on its belly as a sign of Christ's victory over it. And second, verse 15, there will be continuous enmity between its seed and the seed of the woman. Firstly, then, a divine declaration upon a despicable serpent. Secondly, as we move on, I want to show you, as per the screen, 
that the text now speaks of a painful punishment imposed upon our first mother. Turn with me to verse 16 and let's read it again. To the woman he said, in other words, God's now speaking to Eve. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We now see the judgment and the curse announced by God upon our first mother. And just like the judgment and the curse upon the snake was twofold, now you'll see that the judgment upon Eve is twofold as well. One aspect of the curse upon her relating to her children and the other aspect relating to her husband. Let's tackle it that way. Firstly then, in spite of Eve's sin, in spite of the fact that Eve directly disobeyed the very covenant stipulations of God in the Garden of Eden, in spite of that, the grace of God is seen in that there is no withdrawal of the blessing to be fruitful and to, and, and to multiply. You remember, that was God's command to them before the fall, that you will be fruitful and multiply. God does not withdraw that blessing as a result of the curse. Eve, nonetheless, will produce an offspring However, we are told that she will give birth, but that the birth-giving process now will involve much pain as a continual reminder of God's hatred of sin. The text says, I will, note that, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So listen to this. The curse which God now pronounces upon the woman brings along with the very blessing of bringing forth children that it will now be accompanied by a process that will be bitter and painful. Giving birth, God says, from Eve onwards will now be a traumatic and a harrowing experience for most women. Fascinatingly, whenever the Bible wishes to express severe trouble, it will often describe that trouble in terms of a woman undergoing the pangs of childbirth. And Isaiah 13 verse 8 is but one example of that. Now in terms of the curse upon the snake, we, we will see God saying, I will put enmity. Note that. I, says God, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And watch now, in terms of the curse upon the woman, we see God saying, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. Here's what I need you to see. We need to see here, dear friends, is that this animosity introduced here is not inspired by the evil hearts of Adam and Eve. This animosity introduced here is not brought about even by Satan himself. Listen carefully. The animosity introduced here is fueled by God himself. God is committed to this battle. God inspires this battle. I will, I will, says the Lord. Man is now at enmity. With God. God has now 
become man's greatest enemy. Frightful to see the outworking of sin here in the garden, isn't it? And the first way in which God has committed himself against Eve in battle is that Eve will feel the effects of the curse upon her own body every time she brings forth children. That's the first part of the curse in terms of her children. Now, now note the second part of the curse in terms of her own husband. Secondly, God then says to her that she'll feel the effect of the curse in her relation to her husband, Adam. You see, as much as marriage is a blessing, the curse affects marriage in that marriage will suffer disruption. The text tells us, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You see, what we have here is that God measures out a punishment upon Eve that fits the crime. She had in the garden acted independently of the very rule of her husband. She listened to the snake and then she took the forbidden fruit and she encouraged her husband to eat. You see, Eve's sin was an undermining of the authority structures that God gave as a creation ordinance right in the beginning in Genesis. And for this, God says to her that God would punish her and she would from now on feel the effect of that sin in that strain would now be brought as she will now feel the authority of her husband. Let me explain that. You see, the word desire uh, used here, your desire will be for your husband. That word desire that is used here is also used in Genesis 4-7. And in Genesis 4-7, we see it is used in a context where sin had the desire to master Cain. Note that. Sin had the des desire to master Cain. This is what we read in Genesis 4-7. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. In the very same way now, the woman would desire to control her husband and usurp his authority. But God would put a restriction on that in that the woman would fail because God has ordained for the man to lead. Nevertheless, as a result of the curse, the woman will persist in this endeavor to usurp the authority of her husband. And God says to Eve that it will bring continuous strife in domestic relationships. Practically, as a result of the fall, it means that marriage, marriage alone, will never Give any woman all that she wants. Mothering will be fraught with pain from birth onward. Nothing will completely satisfy her. And this, beloved friends, must be seen as a grace because this will drive the willing soul to seek God. Nothing, absolutely nothing would satisfy Eve but God. 
And in spite of the curse, the curse, the first gospel is seen here in Eden as God at the outset demonstrates grace to a fallen mankind. Well, that brings me to the third point then. And it's this. I want you to see thirdly that the text speaks of an incriminating indictment upon Adam, our federal representative. In Genesis 3 verse 17 we read, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Come with me now as we consider this incriminating indictment brought upon Adam, who is our federal representative. Interestingly, as the curse upon the snake was twofold, as the curse upon the woman was twofold, we now also see that the curse brought, uh, brought upon the man is also a twofold declaration by the Lord God. Adam's fundamental sin, listen carefully, dear friends. Adam's fundamental sin was not that he ate of the forbidden fruit, but that he listened to the voice of his wife and heeded her call. Let me restate that. Adam's fundamental error was that he obeyed his wife rather than obeying God. And again, we see that Adam's punishment fits his crime. Firstly then, come with me and note that Adam ate the forbidden fruit. And as a result of this, God says to Adam, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That's verse 17. In other words, all the days of your life, Adam, every time you eat, you will know that it had cost you dearly to provide for yourself. And that, Adam, will be a continual reminder of your sin. It's very interesting to note that the word for toil used here in verse 17 is the very same word used of a woman's pain in childbirth. In other words, there's an analogy being drawn here by God. The pain a woman will experience in childbirth as a result of the curse. It is in similar pain that a man will work for his supply at the sweat of his brow. That is the type of toil which God speaks of here. You see, in order to provide for himself the sustenance he would need to live, there will be blood, sweat and tears. That's the curse. As for the ground, the land also is affected. Instead of producing only what is pleasant for sight and good for food, as we read in Genesis 2.9 prior to the fall, we see now, after the fall, it will now, in verse 18, even bear forth thorns and thistles. The land which was once well watered and fertile is now a land cursed and deprived of the blessings of the Lord. Secondly, then, we see that the very ground with which Adam now has to toil will now become the soil that will overcome Adam. 
Look at verse 19. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You've probably heard those words quite often spoken at funerals. Well, you may know where it comes from. Genesis 3 verse 19. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. In other words, man, uh, sorry, God pronounces upon man that man will die and that his body will return to the very ground from which God had made his body. And this affects all in Adam's line. We all will die and we all will return to dust. But notice again that even with the curse that God pronounces upon Adam, there's always an element of grace present. In spite of this curse, that with toilsome labor, man will produce for himself a harvest from which he will live. In spite of that curse, there still remains an element that accompanies this curse, an element of grace that accompanies the curse. You see, even though the ground will be toiled in burdensome fashion, man still will be able to obtain his bread from the soil and such bread will sustain human life. How incredible is our God? Directly at the curse, directly after Adam and Eve had transgressed the stipulations of the covenant, God still nonetheless makes a pronouncement of grace. You see, God does not rob man of the necessities of life. However, God says that in the process of obtaining such necessities, man will now have to earn them by the very sweat of his brow. Oh, how I am reminded with you that there are always consequences to our sin. And as much as God accompanies the first man and woman's sin by grace, he nonetheless stipulates that there will be everlasting consequences as a result of the sin in the garden. Oh, that you and I would consider our own sinfulness this Lord's day. That you and I would consider that our sin never only affects us alone, but that sin is always a corporate entity and that what I do affects you and what you do affects me. What I do in my family affects my family and what my family does affects me. And so the list can goes on. What a husband does affects his wife and what a wife does affects her husband. What children do affect their parents and what parents do affect their children. Sin is never an isolated event. It always has a direct impact on others. Adam and Eve is the best example of how sin affected all in their line. Well, that brings me to the fourth and then also the final point for consideration this morning. And we're going to stay in verse 17 to 19, but there's, there's a fourth truth that I want to highlight. And it's this. I want you to consider with me a fourfold effect of the curse upon the first Adam Reversed in fourfold manner through Christ the second Adam. Here's the hope of this morning's message. Here is the gospel in this message. Again, our consideration is verse 17, 18, and 19. And beloved, we come now to what I would call the heart of this matter. We come and we see now a, a glimmer of hope. A, a beam of hope reminding us of gospel hope through Jesus Christ. And what's that hope? 
It's the hope of redemption. It's the hope of rescue. It's the steadfast and unmovable hope of release from the bondage of sin and shame. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, Henry Morris very helpfully states, And so, God placed the curse on man and on his whole environment, thus forcing him to recognize the seriousness of his sin, as well as his helplessness to save himself and his dominion from eventual destruction. The necessity of laboring merely to keep alive would go far toward inhibiting still further rebellion and would force him to recognize that Satan's tempting promises had been nothing but lies. Such a condition would encourage him to a state of repentance toward God and a desire for God to provide deliverance from the evil state upon which he had fallen. End of quote. You see, as a result of man's fallen condition, the law of decay and death had now entered and the universal experience thereof is that all things, whether living or non-living, would eventually wear out, run down, grow old, decay and pass into the dust. That means, beloved, that all systems, if left to themselves, will eventually become degraded and disordered. This strange law of decay and disorder is therefore universally applicable and it lies and in it lies the secret of what is wrong with the world. Here it now, here is the secret of what is wrong with the world. Man is a sinner and has brought a curse upon the whole earth. That's what's wrong with the world. Man is a sinner and has brought a curse upon the whole earth. Now, when we consider this wider context, I want you to see that man's condition is described as fourfold here in Genesis. You see, the effect of Adam's sin was tangibly seen in four particular ways directly after his disobedience in the garden. And then I want you to see, and this is really the hope of this morning's message, as much as Adam's sin is seen in fourfold manner, after I've clearly shown you how his sin is seen, I attempt to show you how in fourfold manner the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, comes and undoes the four effects of Adam's sin and deals with them effectively by sacrificial ransom at the cross of Calvary. So, so let's look at those four items. And if you're taking notes, I'll highlight them for you very clearly. The first of those is sorrow. Sorrow. So let's consider how sorrow comes upon Adam. Well, sorrow now comes upon Adam after the fall, and it comes his way as a result of continuous disappointment and futility. Suddenly, his work is futile. Life, in a sense, is futile after the sin. And nothing is like it was before the fall. Nothing is like it was in the beginning. And, and no longer do things function the very way as God designed them to function. And, and suddenly Adam feels that and Adam is gripped by sorrow. The second of these four items 
is pain and suffering. And, and, and that is particularly signified here in Genesis 3 by the fact that the ground now brings forth thorns. You know how painful it is when you are barefoot and you walk in a deep thorn, or a long thorn that goes in deeply. Well, pain and suffering is presented in the garden by thorns existing. And listen now, these thorns will be a continuous hindrance for man in his struggle daily to provide for his family. That's the second aspect, pain and suffering as a result of sin. The third aspect that is seen as a result of Adam's sin is in Genesis 3 depicted as sweat and tears. This is seen as Adam toils in the ground by a strong crying out and an intense struggle for survival in now a very hostile environment. You see where peace and harmony reigned prior to the fall, hostility now rules the day post. And then the fourth element that is clearly seen is physical death. Death, as a result of the fall, would eventually triumph over all man's feeble attempts. Death has now become an enemy and the very composition from which man was made will slowly disintegrate and return to the very soil from which he was taken. Those are the four ways in which it's seen in Adam. Let's just recap them. Sorrow, pain and suffering, sweat and tears and fourthly physical death. But now for the good news, dear friends. You see, in this is contained the good news of the gospel. For Christ, the Son of Man, the second Adam, has been made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Come with me now as I show you how all four of the aspects seen in Adam as a result of the fall are now seen in Christ, and as Christ, the second Adam, comes to undo the effects of the fall of the first Adam. Let's consider them in exactly that same order. Let's start again with sorrow. How was sorrow seen in the second Adam? Well, Isaiah tells us that Christ became a man of sorrows. In Isaiah 53 verse 3, he writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. There was none other who had been acquainted with sorrow as had been the second Adam. Secondly, pain and suffering. How, how, how was pain and suffering seen in the second Adam? Well, you see, Christ the second Adam was not only acquainted with sorrow, but Christ the second Adam equally knew physical pain like none other had ever experienced. He knew physical pain and suffering beyond limits. And it was inflicted upon him because of the first Adam transgressing the stipulations of the covenant that God his father had made with Adam in the garden. Isaiah 53, we're staying there in verse 5, says, But he, listen to pain and suffering, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Pain and suffering. And then during his earthly ministry as the ultimate sign of that pain and suffering. He was given a crown of thorns that was pressed into his skull. So that he could deal with the effect of the thorns which entered upon Adam's sin. Thirdly, let us then see how sweat and tears became part of the second Adam's ministry. Well, you know where I'm going to take you. The night of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, he suffered so intensely to the extent that the agony of that moment which he felt upon his body and, and, and as he felt the utter desertion by the Father as he was awaiting the cross the next morning, uh, the, the moment became so intense that Jesus experienced the greatest of all trauma. For in Luke 22 verse 44 we read, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Sweat and tears. In Hebrews 5-7 we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. You see, it was in the days of his flesh. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And then fourthly, let's consider how the second Adam dealt with physical death. Finally, the second Adam voluntarily laid down his life on the cross of Calvary. It was not taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord. And God brought his own son, according to Psalm 22 verse 15, to lay in the dust of death. Four effects of the curse that comes upon Adam perfectly and sufficiently dealt with in a fourfold manner by the second Adam who gives his life for those of the sheep whom the father had entrusted to the son. The second Adam totally by means of selfless sacrifice voluntarily laid down his life for the reversal of the entire effect of the curse which the disobedience of the first Adam brought on all mankind and on all of creation. Our beloved friends, that leads me to conclude. The conclusion of the matter is that he bore all of the curse himself for us, his people. This means that once again, the dwelling of God shall someday be 
As per Revelation 21 verse 4, be with men, there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. You see here in Revelation 21 4, the effect of the reversal of the curse coming with Adam is clearly seen. In this we see that redemption is as much about God's rule as it is about man's need. Let me say that again. Redemption is as much about God's rule as it is about man's need. And because God is a just God, punishment of sin is required by the very nature of God. God is almighty. But beloved, there is one thing that even God cannot do. And that is that God cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. For you see, if God were to leave sin unpunished, God would in essence be denying himself. And since it is impossible for God to deny himself, it follows that it is impossible for God to leave sin unpunished. God is righteous by nature. And his righteous nature requires that sin be punished justly as it deserves. That punishment, God in righteous anger measured out upon his son for the sin of all who would repent and believe in him. And so, in light of the devastating curse which came along with Adam's sin, we need to state emphatically and unequivocally that the soft, sentimental idea of religion that is so prevalent today is by no means taught in the Bible. For the Word of God teaches that evil is real. And it teaches that redemption from that evil involves utter enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the Bible teaches that this enmity continues throughout all of history, but it, that it ultimately reaches its climax at the very cross of Calvary. There at the cross, Jesus Christ, the suffering Messiah, the seed of the woman, the second Adam, came and he crushed the serpent's head. But in doing so, he himself suffered immensely, for his heel was bruised at Calvary's cross. However, herein is contained the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in the very sufferings and the death of Christ, the second Adam, we see the satisfaction of justice the satisfaction of the justice of God, which at the same time formed the climax of the bitter enmity that takes us right back to Genesis 3 verse 15. Yet, beloved, in all of this we see that there was grace. For God's curse upon Satan meant that his own son would one day become a curse for us. Satan himself would strike the heel of our Lord, but ultimately that very wound received to his heel would mean that the Son of God would strike a final death blow to Satan.
this grace is rooted in the very victory of Christ. We learn, therefore, from the judgment of the first man and woman that nothing would satisfy them but God. And in this, the gracious words of our Lord is once again revealed to you and to me. As he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friend, as I conclude, are you today able to see this first gospel here presented in Genesis 3? Are you able with the eye of faith to recognize the proto-evangelium and the hope that it brings to sinners like you and me as early as Genesis 3 verse 15. For if you are able to see it, then you'll also understand our Lord's words in John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This, beloved, is true grace. Do you know it? Let us pray together. Father, this grace shown even to Adam and Eve directly after their sin in that you did not remove from Eve the blessing of procreation but nonetheless grants her that privilege and blessing from on high. The very fact that you don't leave Adam starving because of his sin, but still give him the privilege to work, even though it be toilsome for his bread. The very fact that the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, is seen as early as Genesis 3.15, reminds us of a God who loves his own people dearly. Father, even this Lord's Day, as we grapple with the sinfulness of our own sin, with the depth of our own depravity, with the remaining wickedness lodged within our own hearts, oh, how encouraged we are and how comforted we are to know that he who loves us, loves us this much. But in the same breath, that you hate those who do evil and those who will not turn and bow the knee to Jesus Christ and that the very curse that is pronounced upon Satan will not only be true for Satan, but it will be true for Satan and all of God's enemies on that final day when Jesus comes again. 
Oh, that today would be the day of reckoning for those who hear the gospel. Oh, that today would be the day of salvation for those who are given the ability to recognize their own depravity. And that today would be the day of freedom for those who place their trust in Christ Jesus as Savior, the second Adam, who in fourfold manner came to undo all the effects of the sin of the first Adam. Therefore, this day we worship you for Christ, the second Adam, and we glorify your name in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Well, dear friends, I trust that as a result of what we've heard, you may call upon Jesus and cling to the promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As I bring this live stream to an end, until we meet again, be it perhaps Wednesday, as we send out another live stream of our midweek devotion, please let's continue being in contact as much as we possibly can. Let's pick up the phone and love and care for one another. Let's continue praying that God will soon bring an end to not only the virus, but an end to this time of isolation in which we can't be together. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, the spoken benediction from the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, verse 20. And now, may the God of peace who brought, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless until we meet again.